Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome to episode 65 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight I'm joined by the guy who, for some odd reason, lets me keep doing this intro every other week, even though I'm basically Burnside at Fredericksburg every time I do it. So I am joined by the awesome Civil War nerd, Darren Weeks. I'm just Mary. Wow. Okay. <laughs> some of us have late last night coming up with the old intro. Yeah. <laughs> Another job done anyway what's going on how are you notice how he didn't say well done anyway so how are things how are how, it's recording again it's been a little while so it we're happy is. to be doing it again it yeah no, it's good to be doing it again for sure yeah it's been a few weeks since yeah. we last sat down to talk so it's good to be back how are you while. doing good. good i'm doing well how's your mood how's everything going good you will notice i do not have my usual tuesday night bitch on no. so okay well we'll see the night is young, night is young. <laughs> but anyway so yeah so We've it's only been a... just begun exactly anyway so it's been a it's been a fun fun week or so we had had some good had a good live last week yeah, and we, we are getting back into the swing of things again we're coming towards the end of the old battle season in the old american civil war yep. we're gonna take the show out west once again we're gonna talk about the battle of spring hill mary in tennessee which was the precursor of the battle of franklin which was the precursor of the battle of nashville but we're going to talk about spring hill but as we always do to get started, there's business to be taken care of and uh, libations to be had. So I will ask you, what are you drinking, Mayor? What am I drinking tonight? I am drinking Mega Treat from the awesome Treehouse Brewing Company. Managed yeah. to get my hands on some Treehouse. <laughs> yeah, funny that works out. And um, what about the mug situation today? Um, I have my mug that we got from John LaRoe from LaRoe Designs. Uh-huh. Ride with the winter mug. I'm using the same mug because you copied me, as we know <laughs> Bucker. that. Yeah. Now I'm drinking Knockabout. It's called Midnight Pumpkin. It's a pumpkin ale. Nice. And it's got a dark sort of something on it, but it's got a moon on it, so it's pretty cool. And there we go. So, a so we could say because it's got England. a moon on it, it's 11th core beer? Yeah, exactly. That's that's why it's uh, going so fast. <laughs> Almost gone with it already. <laughs> but we we're drinking a couple of good Massachusetts beers. So we got some business to take care of. we got to talk about the Western Theater today again. I we're do. getting back out west. And as Jim Morrison once said, the West is the best. It is. Yep. We're in back into the Franklin Nashville campaign, which, if y'all recall, last year around this time we uh, released our episode about the Battle of Franklin. So, if you want to go and refresh your memories about that, check that episode out. As you said, Darren, this is the prelude to Battle of Franklin, and Spring Hill is actually why Franklin happens. It certainly does. But let's let's jump back in the wayback machine, old share, right? If I could and turn, turn back, back time. time. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> and we're going to go real, real quick. We're going to go back to the beginning of what we talked about before. So by the fall of 1864, you know, Atlanta had fallen and the Rebs were very desperate for a victory. The Army of Tennessee was now under control of John Bell Hood, who had replaced Joseph Johnston by Jefferson Davis because the Confederate president did not feel that Johnston was aggressive enough and felt he was going to give up Atlanta without a fight. And by doing so, he'd give up all the uh, very strategic uh, railroads, warehouses, and that big psychological disaster of losing Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a big psychological boon for Lincoln in his 1864 election hopes as well. So in Atlanta, Hood is going to give it's going to go on that aggressive we talked about versus William Sherman's uh, army outside of the city. Sherman, as we all know, he has those big, huge numbers. He's going to push past Hood. There's going to be some hilarious telegrams established back yep. and forth. <laughs> by September 1st, 1864, Atlanta is evacuated by the rebel forces as Sherman is going to move in and occupy the city. He's going to put his feet up. He's going to go to all the good bars. He's going to take over the whole town. He's going to go to the Rough Rebs, and Ready. So he's going to eventually get to Rough and Ready. He's going to do that. But... At the end of the day for Atlanta, the Rebs get pounded. They have huge casualties, and they also have a high number of deserters. So you're looking at a, kind of the, the nadir of the Confederacy at that point, especially in the West. John Bell Hood, we mentioned him briefly. We'll talk about his background again a little bit here. He was born in Owingsville, Kentucky, not Texas, Mary. He's a Kentuckian. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1831 in June, although no one knows the exact date. So that Owingsville Chuck E. Cheese must have been very confusing <laughs> around birthday time because he'd come in at different times throughout the, throughout the month. But he was attended. He was an attendant of West Point in the class of 1853, and was a classmate of John Schofield. We'll talk about here in a little while, and as well as John Burbsy McPherson. Yeah. Exactly. He finished 44th out of 52nd in that class. Had a ton of demerits. They allow you 200. He got 196. Almost, almost. It was right there. He was right on the edge. But he not but he all made, heroes he wear capes, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so <laughs> after 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 graduation, Hood is going to serve under Albert Sidney Johnson in Robert E. Lee in that second U.S. Cavalry in Texas, where he's going to sustain the first of his many war injuries. Remember, he gets shot in the face with the arrow yep. with this one, fighting the Comanches at Devil's River in Texas, mm-hmm. which sounds brutal. 
as time goes on, after the firing of Fort Sumter, he's going to resign his commission primarily due to his home state of Kentucky, not Texas, being neutral. He's going to join the Confederate cavalry as a captain where he's going to quickly earn praise. He's going to end up being promoted to the colonel of the 4th Texas Infantry Regiment. So his star is on the rise, rocket ship for the moon, Mary. He's got that reputation of being very aggressive, a brilliant commander. You you think of him, you think of battles like Gaines Mill. Mm -hmm. He's going to become a division commander under James Longstreet. He's going to have that incident where he's going to bump heads with Nathan Shanks Evans. Remember remember Shanks Evans? Yep, I remember Shanks. After those captured ambulances at 2nd Manassas, and he threatens to to arrest him, and then uh, Lee's going to, is, is going to jump in. He's going to intervene, free him, and he's going to ultimately, you know, and then Hood refuses to apro- apologize to him. Just picture, oh, I'm going to free you. You're going to apologize. I'm not apologizing. And Lee's like, fine, whatever. Don't apologize. But he's going to continue to serve under Longstreet in Gettysburg. Everybody knows the story at Gettysburg where he's going to be hit in the arm and that ar- by the artillery fragment, which is going to leave his arm basically dead. Yeah. And he's going to continue to be able to use it, but it's basically unusable. He doesn't get amputated, but it's basically a dead arm. Yeah. You know, imagine that. He will recuperate. He's going to, his division is going to be sent with Longstreet out west to fight with a guy named Braxton Bragg, Mary. Yep. He's going to fight at Chickamauga where he will have success in driving your friend, Colonel Robert Minty, Mary, yep. um, away from Reed's Bridge. So he's he still continues to have that success couple of days later, he's going to sustain another injury. This is going to be a much more serious one. Yeah. It's going to cost him his leg. He will have his leg amputated just four inches below the hip. A lot of people thought he was going to go up the spout and die because the closer you get to the hip, the more dangerous it yeah. is, but he somehow survives him. He has the support of Jefferson Davis, and that's going to help be named to a corps commander right before Atlanta, again, in uh, May of 1864, which is just going to be a few months for the battle for the city. Before he knows it, Mary, he finds himself, guess what, in charge of the whole damn army. The army he, of Tennessee is going to be in charge of, and he's going to run into problems. Yeah, and he definitely does run into problems. You have battles like Ezra Church, which are a loss for the Confederacy. And at the time, you know, they're the guy who was leading the charge at Ezra Church, Stephen D. Lee, is he's just one day in command, and he's beaten by uh, none other than Oliver Otis Howard. So Ezra Church does not do well and there's other battles that just after they've left Atlanta things are not going very well to the point where on September the 25th Jefferson Davis is going to pay Hood a visit after he has withdrawn to Palmetto Georgia they plan a strategy for Hood to move on Chattanooga Tennessee and to try and fuck around with Sherman's lines of communication and the hope is that Sherman is going to follow them and he does for a little bit as we're going to talk about I'm sure but then he just kind of stops because he has other things brewing in the background so so at this meeting on September the 25th, Davis tells Hood he hasn't been happy with what has been happening so far in the Atlanta campaign and the number of troops that have been lost, he's also not happy with. He implies that he is considering replacing Hood, but he decides not to. It's also at this time that General William J. Hardy is transferred out of the Army of Tennessee, and that is most likely because Hardy and Hood do not get along. And then Beauregard, or Beauregard as he's also known, is selected to kind of quote-unquote supervise Hood, although he doesn't really, it's more of, I I think, kind of a symbolic role. I don't know how much supervision was going on. But it's funny that, you know, Davis has this kind of, you know, he's basically scolding Hood saying, you need to improve or I'm going to replace you. And then he finally tells Hood, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to replace you, which is similar to what we saw Davis do with Braxton Bragg after Chickamauga when um, all that stuff went down with that petition that his commanders had signed to get rid of him. As Davis is making his way back to Richmond, he's making a series of speeches. Now, these speeches are very much propaganda in nature, and they actually are a little bit of foreshadowing to how Davis is going to be on his escape when the Confederacy finally falls and they lose the Civil War. But he says this in one of his speeches. General Hood's strategy has been good and his conduct gallant. His eye is now fixed upon a point far beyond that where he will be assailed by the enemy. He hopes soon to have his hand upon Sherman's line of communications and to fix it where he can hold it. I believe it is in the power of the men of the Confederacy to plant our banners on the banks of the Ohio, where we shall say to the Yankee, be quiet or we shall teach you another lesson. It's this shit that Sherman is reading in the paper. And that's how he he gets wind of what Hood is up to. But not only that... This is, I, I don't know what you think about it, but I think it's very propaganda in nature. Well, of course it is. I mean, just, the morale. Think about where, where they are. So Atlanta's just fallen, or it's about yeah. to fall. Everything's falling apart. You know, the pet's heads are falling off. Yeah. The whole thing's a complete mess, right? Now you have a guy who you're personally in charge is just being put in, 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 in hood by Davis. Yeah. But he gets the job. And, you know, you think about when Meade took over at Gettysburg, right? Yeah. He had some strong people underneath him. Guys like Slocum and mm. Hancock and Reynolds and guys like that. 
he takes over this army of Tennessee and that maybe the Confederacy is one of their darkest hours, especially in the West. And who does he get? He gets three brand new shiny corps commanders. Yeah. So you mentioned William Hardy gives up the old quit and he takes off. Yep. Leonidas Polk, he got killed by Howard in the artillery. Yeah, right? he so did. he's going to be out. And Hood is promoted up. So now you've got three openings. So you have new to Corps command. You've got a guy named Alexander Stewart, who had, he had the success of Perryville we talked yep, about, he right? Did. So he's, yep. you know, he's a successful guy. Yep. And he rose quick. And he's going to get Polk's former command. Stephen Dill Lee, guy you just mentioned there, he's got experience fighting in the East, and he's also got that cavalry and artillery experience. Yeah, but he just and had the, was it Tupelo disaster? Right, he, he had Tupelo that he said was a victory, which wasn't. Yeah. Okay. He's going to get Hood's old corps. And then Benjamin, Frank Cheatham, okay, he's going to, he gets Hardy's old corps. Now, now Cheatham, mind you, unlike Stewart and unlike Lee, He's got no military experience. I mean, no. as far as education, I mean, okay. He's he's not a West Point like Lee and he's not a West Point like Stewart, but he has that experience in Mexico. And he was also very popular with his troops and he's also very aggressive. Yep. So he's rare. He's ready to go. He enjoyed the so, liquor too. He does. So Hood, he gets this he gets this band together again full of these new people, and he is determined to take that army north mm -hmm. to Tennessee. Now, you you hinted a few minutes ago going up there. Why he went up there, it's 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 debated, really. He went up there to, to prolong the war, possibly. He went up there to disrupt Sherman's supply lines, because the supply line in Nashville is right there. There are some historians, Mary, who say that he had no idea why he was going up there, but he was going up there. Yep. It depends on who you want to read with Hood. It's a very it controversial, been... it's, it's the whole Franklin-Nashville campaign is very, I don't know, it's it seems like one of the more controversial campaigns in the sense that it did not a lot of, there's not a lot of answers to why it happened. Uh, I'll, here's the deal. Okay. We're going to jump, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. I'm just, <gasps> just to the end. Just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you is this. Da, 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 da. Pe people who study Spring Hill, you have that Pavlovian response mm -hmm. that Hood screwed this up yep. bad. Okay. And I'm going to tell you right now, my opinion is he did not. Okay, we're going to go into this. I don't blame Hood as much as other people do. And I am not a Hood fan. Yeah. When you look at the actual reading between the lines, you realize there were a lot of issues at play. A lot of strange things afoot at the Circle K with there, this one, Mary. There are. Right? Yeah, and I have to say, so, I do agree with you in, in the research I did. I went into this, like, I'm not a huge fan of Hood either, but I went in, into this being kind of Team Cheatham. And uh -huh. I can say that I've, from the reading I've done, definitely, you know, I... I lean more towards Hood that this is not the blame should not completely rest on mm -hmm. his shoulders. So let's let's talk about this in more details. So around September October 1864, Hood is going to move west and north of Atlanta, and he wants to pull Sherman out of those fortifications, try to lure him into a fight. Right? Sherman ain't going to take the bait. The hell with this. Sherman does though. He's he's nervous about what Hood's going to do, especially with Tennessee. He's going to send George the Rock of Plymouth Thomas um, <laughs> to, to this Thanksgiving time, Mary, to command an army to defend that Middle Tennessee and Nashville area. So he's going to send some people up there. So under Thomas is a guy named John Schofield. We talked about, as I mentioned, former classmate of John Bell Hood at West Point. He will lead an army that's made up primarily of the Fourth and Twenty Third Army Corps. Now Schofield knew it's going to take a while to get all the troops and men via the railroad to Middle Tennessee. So he, he knows his time is limited. So he's got to hurry up and he knows it. He knew the Rebs were going to move as quick as well to try to take advantage of that opportunity to move into Middle Tennessee as well. So you kind of two armies kind of trying to race to the same point and that target is likely Nashville. So yep. late October 64, Hood's Army of Tennessee is going to arrive in the town of Florence, Alabama, which is going to kind of be their kickoff point for this Tennessee campaign. It's going to be kind of their, their staging ground, right? Immediately, he runs into logistical issues. We're going to talk about many of the issues he's going to run into with logistics. A lot of his supplies don't, haven't arrived in Florence yet. So they end up sitting around, sitting around whittling for three weeks in Florence, <laughs> hanging out while Schofield continues to move north towards Middle Tennessee. So mm -hmm. jump ahead a little bit. November 19, 1864, one year to the day, Mary, of the Gettysburg Address, by yep. the way. Rebel Cavalry Commander and, of course, popular fun lover Nathan Bedford Forrest, <laughs> he is going to move north from Florence, Alabama, into Tennessee. So he's going to kind of put the feelers out, right? So a couple of days later, Hood's infantry finally gets off their, their butts. It begins to move, and they're going to follow the path that Forrest is paving for them. So just, just picture the army here for a second. Hood is going to move in two columns for the most part. Lee and Stewart's corps, they're going to go northeast towards the town of Lawrenceville, Tennessee. Cheatham's corps is going to go north towards Waynesboro, Tennessee. 
which is where Hood is going to be with them. Now, Hood, he's quoted, he says, and I quote Mary, by a rapid march to get in, in the rear of the Federals, then at Pulaski, Tennessee, before they are able to reach the Duck River. So right off the bat, Hood wants, for the most part, is to get between Schofield, who's sitting in camps at Pulaski, yep. and Nashville. He's trying to Savannah him, get in the rear, right? He's trying. He's, he's going to make it hurt. That's what he's going to try to do. Okay, well, okay. But, well, it's around this time, too. Like, morale is said to have been pretty good, but then as they get going, it gets a little bit worse because the weather is not very good at all. Like, there's one point where they have to basically, like, the horses are in such short rations, like we talked about mm-hmm. in our horse episode. They didn't always get enough to eat. The men are having to help haul the artillery because what happened is when Cheatham's men left, so Claiborne was leading the way, it was in a sleet storm. Mm-hmm. Sleet is the fucking worst. And then it stopped and the sun came out and like the ice all melted and stuff. And it was just like the men said the mud was over their shoes and it was just not great. Now, the one thing Claiborne does around this time is he's really good at rallying his men. He is said to have made a few speeches to his troops where he basically repeated several times his determination to die rather than surrender. So that is an idea of where this army is at at this point in the war in late 1864. Like they've got to know. It's, in it's their mind, done. it's 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 late in the fourth quarter. They're yep. down, and they have to do what they can. So the, the other issue Hood had was he's got his army basically marching up three different roads, yep. and he doesn't understand the terrain in front of him. And that's an issue. He doesn't understand the terrain. His army will be crossing, throwing the weather here in a few minutes. The other thing he doesn't really know really is the whereabouts of the federal army. He doesn't really. No. He's kind of going blind in, in a territory he doesn't know the land. His objective is clearly Nashville, and he knows he has to hurry to stay ahead of Schofield. Now, you mentioned the weather, okay? Weather is always the great equalizer, and for whatever reason, the weather is something in all these battles, all these campaigns that doesn't seem to get enough attention. I mean, I'm walking from my car into this house here. I'm freezing. It's a hundred feet. These guys are marching a long time. So they began that forced and hurried march. And that's what it was on November 20th, 1864. It is that cold rain, that sleet you talked about, and all the wagons are all bogged down in Florence. Yeah. So just picture that mud march, right, that Burnside had, right? Mm-hmm. The next day is the 21st of November. Now it's snowing out. These guys aren't dressed well. I mean, they're poorly dressed. These are Southerners in the snow. I mean, you see them drive, Mary? No, right? that. Okay. This is going to continue into the 22nd. Now, one rebel soldier, he says, the ground is frozen hard and a sharp cold wind is blowing, but my face is towards Tennessee. I heed none of these things. So what this tells you is this. A, I'm friggin' freezing, yep. but B, I'm fired up. I'm proud. Yeah. Because we're heading into Tennessee. My face is straight ahead. This sucks, but I'm going. So it's, you know, these guys, it reminded me a lot of like in the Gettysburg campaign Mm -hmm. when those Pennsylvania boys got back into Pennsylvania. Yeah. And they're and they're all singing "Home Sweet Home" by Motley Crue. Yep. And what happens is they they the Tennessee soldiers who are from Tennessee they're crossing that state line yep. and they're cheering once they cross. Who joins them over the border is the governor, a guy named Isham Harris. Yes. Yep. Who, who's going to join Hood for the rest of this campaign? He's as, at the Battle of Shiloh. Did you know he was at yeah, the Battle he's, of Shiloh? Yeah, this, this guy gets around there. Yeah. You know, you know, is is Hood's army is moving north into Tennessee? They are going to bump into some, have some skirmishes with the Federals mm-hmm. along the way. But, you know, what you said a few minutes ago is, is, is a good point. The weather's bad, but the morale is strangely good. Well, I think right? it's because I wonder if, and I just thought of this now, you know, they're going for Nashville, which was one of the earlier Confederate cities to fall. If they could take that back. I think, think it was the first Confederate yeah. capital to fall, Mary. Do you realize all those Kenny Chesney concerts they missed by losing that capital? <laughs> so it's the first Confederate capital to fall. And I think maybe, you know, if they can try and get that back, what that would do. Because you think about the well, position it, that Richmond is in right now, right, with Grant and all that. If you can go and get back that, you know, Nashville. You'd also yeah. recapture all the supply lines. Exactly. That was a big thing. So yeah. November 25th, the greatest day of the year of 1864 uh hood is going to arrive at mount pleasant tennessee which is a few miles south of the duck river mm-hmm. and about 11 miles south or so southwest from a town called columbia tennessee so they're slowly moving now one of hood's confidants on this march is a chaplain by the name of charles quintard the first tennessee infantry who was with hood at his headquarters he was kind of like his he's always there mm-hmm. and he writes a lot of good first-hand accounts of hood in this situation okay and this quote, it's, he's, Quintard says, he writes, Hood was in the best health and spirits and full of hope as to the results of his presence movements. The reason why I mention this is because when you hear about Hood a lot in the Tennessee campaign, you hear a lot of rumors about his health, 
and yeah. the stories of the laundrum and all that stuff you hear about how he was kind of loopy. This quote point blank says the dude's sharp as a tack. He's yep. ready to go. He's healthy. He's motivated. He's He's got all his wits. Mm -hmm. So it's important to note that somebody with him firsthand is saying this exactly. because it kind of debunks a lot of those rumors you hear about this oh, thing with him. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I think, you know, I think Hood's injuries did plague him. It's quite evident yeah. they were plaguing him at Ezra Church, but it could have been a, you know, depends on the day kind of situation, right? Maybe Ezra Church, he was having a bad day. But yeah, I think sometimes that, you know, Hood's health kind of might be a little bit exaggerated. But when you hear something like what you just said, you know, to your point, here's somebody firsthand who's who's saying this, that he's, you know, he's with it. And his morale is obviously mm -hmm. high, too, for Yeah, for so what's the, tw happening. The, 20, the 26th of November, the Rebs are going to arrive near Columbia, and they're going to set up a parallel position to Schofield, right? So Hood is going to move his headquarters to, a, to the house of a guy named Andrew Polk, who was a rebel captain in Tennessee. And then he's going to eventually move to the house of a woman named Mrs. Warfield, about three miles south of Columbia. Uh, Chaplain Quintard, again, I'm going to read another quote, Mary. I had a pleasant conversation with Hood. He detailed to me his plan of taking Nashville, which I do not feel at liberty to write down, <laughs> except to say that 700 men will either fill 700 graves or receive the laurel crown. So again, the reason I mention this is because people question what he was really looking to do. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, based on these quotes, this Quintard guy, he's a chaplain. He's not some local Goderich DQ employee. <laughs> this is a guy with cachet. <laughs> he confirms that Nashville is what he wants to do, which is pretty obvious. But some people question what he, what he was going to do. Yeah. So Hood is going to discover that or the next morning, right, that Schofield at this point has crossed the Duck River, mm -hmm. right, and was still moving. Now, Hood, what he wanted to do, he wants to swing around Schofield east of that Duck River and hit him north of it. And when he found out he crossed the Duck River, he must have just face popped at that point. Because oh, he was a dollar yeah. late and a day short yeah. a lot of times on this campaign, right? And you know what else happens around the same time? He gets a letter from old friend PGT Beauregard there. And he tells him two important things. One, Uncle Billy Sherman's marching through Georgia. Yeah. And two, you better get your ass moving. Because, you know, we, we got we, we to get going here, Oh, yeah. Right? And that's, that's why, you know, early on in the campaign, like... Hood was trying to draw Sherman back into Tennessee, away from Atlanta. And all of a sudden, like, you know, there was a period of time where Sherman didn't really know where Hood was, and then he found him again. But then all of a sudden, Sherman kind of pulls back. And I think that's when the whole idea for the march to the sea, you know, he's uh -huh. like, okay, we're going to do this instead. And that's when he sends, you know, Debbie Downer, General Thomas, into Middle Tennessee to, to watch what's going there. And he's got Schofield with him as uh -huh. well. But yeah, now you have this other side of it happening this march to the sea which is that's got to be like Beauregard must have just been we're fucked dude you need to hurry it up oh yeah and they don't know if he's living off the land they still see Nashville as a supply depot yeah so Hood is going to tell Chaplain Quintard here he's going to say that he is either going to beat the enemy to Nashville or make him go there at a double quick so the race is on to Nashville so the 27th of, of November Hood is going to sit down, he's going to give his orders to his corps commanders, as Ben Cheatham, Stephen D. Lee, and Alexander Stewart from that, that Warfield house. Now, he's going to move most of his army across the river towards Columbia and then northwest to a town called Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is about 13 miles or so away. If he controls Spring Hill, he's going to more importantly control and gain access to that Columbia turnpike to Nashville, and that's what he wants. He wants to get there. He wants to block that. So what does he do? He's going to send Forrest Cavalry upstream first to drive away any Union Cavalry that's in his front, right? And then what he wants to do, he's going to send Cheatham's Corps, and he's going to build, they, they build these pontoon bridges, and they're going to cross over the river, right? Yep. Stewart's Corps is going to follow along just one division from Hill's Corps. So Hood is going to take Stephen D. Lee, and he's going to keep him back in Columbia with most of the artillery and most of the wagons. And what he wants to do is he wants Lee to demonstrate on Schofield's army, who's still sitting in Columbia, right, to keep them focused on him and not focus on that hood army that's sneaking around his union left towards Spring Hill. The other thing that happens at this time, too, is Schofield's being directed by Thomas to start withdrawing north towards Franklin because they figured out what Hood's movements are. And he wants to defend against Hood at the Harpeth River at Franklin instead of the Duck River at Columbia because he realizes yeah. he can't now. So Schofield is going to send his 800 wagon supply train out in front, guarded by General Wagner. And as you said, that's when Hood sends Forrest with the cavalry. And you and it's right around this time when Schofield kind of smells a rat. Right? Yeah. He's he's gonna figure out that Hood is gonna try to flank him mm -hmm. and try to cut him off on his way to Nashville. So 1129, 1864, three o'clock in the morning, call me maybe time. <laughs> 
hood is up and he replaces his feety pajamas with his uniform. <laughs> he's going to get up, right? And he's ready to speak to do that forced march to Spring Hill, which is a 13 mile away. And he wants to cut off Schofield's army from that road leading to Nashville. So he'll he'll tell Quintard again. He, he's this shows you how how close these guys are. The enemy must give me fight, or I'll be in Nashville by tomorrow night. So obviously, Lytle wasn't the only poet in the Civil War. By the way, <laughs> you know, just read that, read that one three times quick. <laughs> so 11 o'clock in the morning, the Rebs are on the move to Spring Hill. And they're crossing Duck River at the Davis Ford after Forrest and his merry men across at Davis's Owens cars and Holland's Fords. And they're pushing that Yankee cavalry away. Mm-hmm. They're starting to engage some federal infantry on east and south of Spring Hill, um, while more Union troops are continuing to advance north on the village. So they're moving. That's going to be an issue with the communication we're going to find out. Now, yep. Forrest... He's going to consolidate all of his troopers near a place called Rally Hill. All morning, he's been pushing this federal cavalry as far away as Franklin. So they're driving him away. He's he's road grading at this point. And Hood's men are starting to move too. But again, what are they dealing with? Those crappy roads, yep. muddy fields. They're trying to, it's, it's, like, it's like they're trying to race somebody, but they're running on ice. Yep. Well, there were some of the, the Federals that were said to be, I think it was Stanley's. They basically ran through Spring Hill. Like they took it mm-hmm. at a run. Like that's how quick these guys were booting it. Just picture uh, like a, a, a road race in yeah. the last 50 yards. You're right there that's with what the they're guy doing. to push it. That's kind of what they're doing. So by minute, by early to mid afternoon, Hood, and you mentioned before, Claiborne's division is, is that lead element in Cheatham's mm-hmm. Corps. They're about two miles or so from Spring Hill, Southeast. They're, they're getting pretty close. Now, David Stanley, the guy you just mentioned, he's the guy who's in charge of the fourth Corps. He's in Spring Hill and he's notified. He gets a knock on the door. <laughs> by a panicked cavalry guy saying, because you have running in all sweaty, all yeah. freaking out. And he's telling him that um, Forrest Cavalry's here. He's like, oh, shit. So he's going to respond by calling up George Wagner's division and then rushing them forward as fast as they could. So now you got that pucker effect moment now. Yep. So now they're realizing that these people are a lot closer than they thought they were. But what Hood didn't know at the time was that Schofield, now this is Hood now, Schofield, he didn't know that Schofield already beaten him to Spring Hill. Yeah. He thinks he thinks that, you know, he's still way back in Columbia, right? Schofield had a 10-mile supply train of 80 wagons, right? Uh, led by Everson Opdyke's brigade from Stanley's Fourth Corps. So they're already on the move for whatever reason. And this is one of the this is one of the one of the first time I'm gonna give Hood a pass with this. Okay. Yep. First of a few times. Stephen Neatley is staying back mm-hmm. and he's demonstrating with artillery to uh to keep Schofield focused there. Schofield just goes anyway. For whatever reason, Stephen Lee does not tell Hood Schofield's on the move. Oh, and he that's gonna, gonna play in huge to the Battle of Franklin. That right. and so him doing that. So if you're if you're a hood, you're thinking, I've got time. Mm-hmm. I've got till at least tomorrow till these guys get here, right? But what he doesn't know is that Schofield's lead element, Stanley, they're already there. Yep. So Opdyke is going to rush into the town of Spring Hill, and he's going to set up regiments along Main Street and a line that runs along the north and northeast sides of the town, along with a guy named John Quincy Lane's brigade, who's also in Wagner's division. Now, enter Luther P. Bradley. He's another guy in Wagner's division from the great New Haven, Connecticut. You'll notice the sarcasm as I say that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I'll leave that alone. I've been in Connecticut before, (laughs) driven through it. At a brisk five miles an hour. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, so... Bradley's going to be moving into the field south and east of the town over a ridge that overlooked the Rally Hill Pike, right? Wagner, Wagner's going to rush six batteries into Spring Hill and set up these 36 cannons in about 30 minutes. So everything is fast, 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 fast. Wagner has 5,000 guys that are guarding the town, and they're going to help defend themselves from Forest Cavalry, and they're going to hold that ground and actually get Forest to a draw, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Hood is still hearing these distant artillery thuds from the south, and he assumes that's still Stephen D. Lee's guns yep. engaging Schofield, and the Yankees are still dealing with them 13 miles away. Again, one of the many communication errors that's going to haunt Hood in this. Yep. So Hood, at this point, is going to move his infantry forward anyway. He also doesn't consult Forrest either, by the way. So, because he doesn't, he doesn't know what the situation in his front is. So you got Stuart and Cheatham's Corps. They're going to be arriving in the field at the Rally Hill Pike with Claiborne's division in front. Okay, Claiborne is going to, you mentioned before, is going to hit Luther P. Bradley's brigade and fight for a good solid hour here. Yeah, and Bradley's going to be very badly injured here, and he's going to be taken directly to Nashville. 
this engagement right here is where most of the uh, of the casualties are going to take place. Yeah. The battle of Springfield. Okay, so Claiborne he's going to lose two hundred fifty people mm-hmm. uh, in, in in his division. Bradley is going to be beaten severely. He'll be personally injured. To, to your point, the forty second Illinois they will take fifty percent casualties in this battle. Claiborne is going to push Bradley. Is going to push him back. And this is when you're going to have guys like Daniel uh, Daniel Govan and Mark Lowry. Those brigades. They're going to chase Bradley, and they're going to keep going, going, going yep. until they finally get stopped by federal artillery. And yep, this is where Claiborne up. is going to pump the brakes and say, whoa, whoa, He's whoa, like, whoa, let's camp here for the night. We need to stop, and that's because David Stanley has 18 field pieces set up um, just south of Spring Hill, and that's what they run into. They've, they've made it pretty far, and Claiborne messages Cheatham. He gets out the cell phone, and I guess the signal was okay, but he says that his right brigade had been struck in the flank by the enemy and had suffered severely and that he had been compelled to fall back and reform his division with a change of front. But the other thing Claiborne does is Granberry is elsewhere in the field, and Granberry is another one of his commanders. He gets Magnum, his law, former law partner, turned aide-de-camp, says, you need to get the fuck to Granberry and tell him I need his help. At that moment when that happens, a shell bursts directly overhead and wounds Claiborne's horse, Red Pepper. Doesn't kill the horse like at Perryville, but it wounds Red Pepper because he's actually going to be riding Red Pepper the next day at Franklin. Hope he didn't get his chest pieces scattered <laughs> to pick all those, stuff to find those ponds in <laughs> the snow. Hood at this point, he, you know, he he has a new headquarters established now at a yep. place called the Absalom Thompson House. Mm-hmm. And while Claiborne's doing this fighting, he's going to personally tell William Bates to take his division and get his ass on the Columbia Pike. This is he's about 500 yards away from the Pike at this point. Yeah. And he's also going to send John C. Brown to go to Claiborne's right. Now, this is where a lot of this stuff gets messed up with the communication, yep. right? So while Bate is ready to go, he's going to get a message from his direct boss, a guy named Benjamin Frank Cheatham. Yep. Okay. Cheatham was going to tell him basically, what are you doing? Well, Hood told me to go block the road. He's like, well, I'm telling you, you need to fall back and get on the left flank of Claiborne's division. And doesn't he Cheatham, threat, does it say, or come to me under arrest? Yeah, or you're going to be arrested, okay, which you probably hear all the time. I do, you know, yeah. So Bate, for Bate, it's probably news. So he decides to do it. So Cheatham, for whatever reason, likely because darkness is falling now, he doesn't want to fight in the darkness. Well, he has a thing. Yeah. He and Claiborne are not big on night attacks. Now, Claiborne would do it. Now, Claiborne is waiting for Brown. Brown has been told, you know, you need to support Claiborne. Let him know that you're supporting him by firing your artillery. Brown just decides not to do that because uh-huh. it would, he's like, I'm going to be absolutely annihilated if I do that. We can't do that. This night attack never happens, which is perfectly fine with Cheatham and especially Claiborne because they learned at Chickamauga that night attacks are not good. Yeah. So Cheatham, you know, he decides that we ain't going to fight. It's getting dark. He thinks it's smarter for him to go around and get on from Claiborne's flank. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, okay, that's not the question. That's what the question is. Okay. Your poor base, what do you do? So it must have been a tough spot for him because yep. he finds himself with contradictory orders from his two bosses. We've all been there, right? Yeah. It's kind of like when the, the manager's telling you to work the drive through and the blizzard machine. You don't know who the hell to follow, no. right? It's the same because you, you, you make your best situation. So Bates does get that confirmatory order, though. He does say, well, what do I do? He does stop marching to the pike, and he does fall back to Claiborne's left flank. Because your point is he had already get arrested, so I think I'll do what I'm told. Yeah. He ultimately does it, though, but he wants support on his left, too, because he's the end. So he ends up getting support from Edward Allegheny Johnson, you know, Gettysburg yep. fame, Cops yep. sell the whole deal. Yep. So you've got Allegheny Johnson and William Bates Patrick Claiborne, John C. Brown. That's kind of how the line goes all along the east side of the Columbia Pike and along Rally Pike. So it kind of looks like a question mark tilted yep. to the right a little. Hood also decides to hold back Alexander Stewart's corps back at a place called Rutherford Creek. So he's kind of keeping one in reserve as well. So by now, darkness has fallen. You feel bad for Hood here. Yes. He's probably sitting there and he's like, well, I've got this guy Schofield set up. I've got him. Yep. I've got him totally set up. As soon as he makes it here to Spring Hill, he I've got him. He knows the army's there somewhere, but he he's, thinks he's in position to do it. Around now, Hood is going to go send Governor Isham Harris, right, to go find Cheatham. Go find Cheatham and find out what the hell's going on on my front. Around the same time, Stuart walks in and goes, hey, boss, why the hell am I back at Rutherford Creek? <laughs> and so he, he he's telling you need to stay there because he's thinking, as the feds retreat east, you're going to be able to bag him. Yeah. He's like, all right. Harris goes to that little recon. He sends a note back to Hood says, hey, not for nothing. It looks like Schofield might be able to extend his line beyond John C. Brown's right flank 
Maybe you should send Stewart from Rutherford Creek over to Brown's right and extend the line and then block the road. And he's like, all right, so it's 6 p.m. Okay, it's dark. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Here's the problem, though. And this is when Hood must have just, if, if he could move his arm, he would have pounded yeah. the desk. That's not how mad he would have been, right? Hood assumed Brown's line faced west, yep. okay? And it didn't. He has it no idea the direction of the troops. So, so instead, so when he orders Stewart to get on the right, Without knowing Brown's position, Stewart takes Nathan Bedford Forrest with him and he returns to Hood's headquarters and says, hey, um, hey, boss, I don't think this is right. If I go on, on John C. Brown's right, I'm going to be drifting off to the northeast. I'm not along the road anymore. His line is not facing east. It's facing northeast. They wouldn't be along the Columbia Pike. They're drifting away from the road. So Hood at this point realizes, shit, Brown did not follow the orders as obeyed. And we are not in position on the Columbia mm -hmm. Pike after all. But he's thinking, well, Schofield's not coming till tomorrow. I can deal with this shit. He doesn't know the feds are moving in large numbers on Spring Hill and that Cheatham had deployed Bate and then Claiborne and then Brown gradually moving away from that road. Yep. So they're not in position right. But again, his orders weren't followed. The lines were basically facing the wrong way. So he does order Stewart to send out a brigade to just block the road. You know, go out there and block it, right? Yep. Stewart replies, my men are too high, too tired, and they're too hungry. Can't do it. So Hood says, tells Stewart, okay, we got time. Why don't you rest your guys? Be prepared to move in the morning. But what Hood does, though, he does ask Forrest to send a brigade to seize the Columbia Pike. Yeah. Forrest complains, too. He says, we don't have any ammo, but I'll try to, I'll try to do it. He gave his last brigade that had ammo to, to Claiborne. Yeah, that was what he so, that that was what he done. So he, so he didn't have any of that left. And basically, what you have happening is Hood and Cheatham are doing two very different things at this battle for whatever reason. Hood wants to seize the pike, great plan, except that Cheatham wants to assault Spring Hill for whatever mm -hmm. reason. He got that in his head that he wants to assault Spring Hill, and that's basically what's happened here. And it's severe miscommunication. So it's getting late. It's about eleven o'clock at night. You know, the local news is just coming on. He's <laughs> getting ready to go to bed, right? So Hood. And you have to, and Hood and his army, they've got to be completely wiped out. Oh at this my God, point. they must be just a so exhausted. A forced march going through the snow in the yep. un unknown territory. So Hood is going to crash. He's going to he's going to go to bed. He's going to you know he's going to he's going to go to sleep, and he's going to be woken up soon later by William Bates going to pop in, and he's going to say, "Hey, um, boss, this Federals marched north or along north along the Columbia Pike here, and this is probably the first time that Schofield um, that Hood realizes Schofield's probably nearby, really, because yeah. for sure, Hood for whatever reason doesn't have corroborating evidence. He doesn't think it's, he's not sure, so he, he kind of blows it off a little bit, right? The rebel soldiers. Like I said, they're completely wiped out from all from all that march. They're all gonna go to they're all gonna go to sleep and they're all gonna crash in camp. And I bet you it was one of the better sleeps they've ever had. Oh, I just I just can you imagine? I I can't day? imagine how exhausted they must have been. And you know, Schofield's men are gonna go right by them in in the middle of the night, and that probably played into huh? it. Just sort of sheer when you're exhausted, you don't hear shit. Allegheny Johnson. You know he's on that left now, right? Mm. To, the, to the left of, of Bate. Yep. He's gonna he he's gonna hear sounds on the Columbia Pike all night long, yep. right? They they kind of like want to attack the noise, but they can't see what it is. And Cheatham's like, no, it's dark. We're, we're not. We don't know what the hell's out there. Just stay with the yeah, hell he, you Cheatham are. Yeah, so was like, no to a night attack. So later that morning, now it's November thirtieth, the next day. Hood is going to get awakened by a private who is reporting federal wagons are pouring northward along the pike west of the rebel positions. Mm -hmm. Hood's like, well, we'll fire upon him then. If you see him, shoot upon him, right? Hood's going to realize that during the night, Schofield has marched his army through Spring Hill, was now on his way to Nashville, and had already was already near Franklin. And that also, he finds out that Forrest was unable to hold the, hold the road as ordered, right? When you look at the terrain, it's it's difficult to imagine with the hills and with all mm -hmm. with night. We talk about a lot of these acoustic shadows. We yeah. talk about a lot. It's very possible based on where the rebel army was placed that they wouldn't have heard much at all. Well, they say that you know where where Claiborne was bivouacked for the night. Which keep in mind that this is his last night alive, as it is for a lot of these men in this army. It's their last night alive. Claiborne was there was probably enough of the, just the way the landscape was to make that acoustic shadow that he couldn't have heard anything that night at all and the other thing that's interesting too was nathan bedford forest mary he does not report to hood no. that he couldn't hold the road and they got by he doesn't no. report that so hood he's going to be as you can imagine he's not going to be too happy right Ooh. he's going to blame he's probably he's like me blame. on a tuesday oh no a one's normal that bad. tuesday <laughs> 
Fucker. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna blame Cheetah for obeying his orders to block the Columbia mm-hmm. Pike. But he's gonna kind of back off because he hears that the the person he gave the orders to fell asleep or he gave the Cheatham or something. And but Cheatham did later say that he did receive the order and did advance to the road. But when he got there, he found it completely empty and decided to return back to camp. Mm-hmm. So whatever really happened here is one of those enduring mysteries of the Civil War that yep. no one, it's just one of those things. But yep. the criticism of Hood, though, right? And this is what I come away with this, with Hood. I think Hood's overall plan to get to Nashville for Schofields, I thought it was a really good plan. It is. I thought it was really solid. Yep. Here's the thing. His plan was not to defeat Schofield. His plan was to get to Nashville first. Right. And I think that was completely for more. It was for moral reasons, I think, because this is an army that I think they're starting to recognize, especially with Sherman doing his march to the sea more than ever. They need to seize that city back. Because Hood gets a lot of criticism for not attacking Schofield. But that was not the plan. It was not. Mm. Also, Hood was also blindsided by the early arrival of Schofield because of Stephen D. Lee's never telling him that he was coming. Because yep. he thought he he probably thought he had about 12 hours ahead, right? Yep. He thought that he had time because the feds were likely pinned down by their, that artillery in Columbia. Yeah. That, you know, and so, and the thing about it too is the other thing that, that I, I don't quite understand is let's pretend for a second Cheatham does block the pike. Yep. You know what Schofield's going to do? He's going to go around him. Exactly. He's going to like he's going to go around to the left hand side to reach Franklin, or he might just bypass Franklin altogether and go right to Nashville. Yeah. It's tough to blame Hood completely for this because it's 2020 hindsight being your benefactor. It's easy to point the finger at him with this, yeah. but there's so many variables. The truth of the matter is, play the other side of the coin. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, again, Hood is not a front. This is Ezra Church again. Yeah, he he's, he's there not for a, a little bit, but then he goes back thinking everything's okay. Right. So he leaves his command in control of three very inexperienced yep. corps commanders, which is going to come back and haunt him again. Who failed to take his orders? Should live? Should Hood have given this much leeway to to these green guys? Probably, maybe not. That's that's debatable. Well, it's fine. Um, you know, well, it, it's it, it's interesting because you you look back to something like with Meade at Gettysburg. He's fresh in command, and he's basically giving the field, telling Hancock to take the field. How long has Hancock held that position? Yeah. Well, that's like, the other thing too. Is is it Hood not trusting too much in his green? core commanders or is it hood being green in army command right yeah and that that's where you don't know right that's what gets you but again at the end of the day hood's plan to was was solid it was Mm -hmm. but it lacked a lot of information for schofield's positions and movements and ultimately being screwed it ends up being completely screwed up because of god knows what that we'll never really know but what it's going to do it's going to result in that absolute bloodletting the next day at the Battle of Franklin, yep. right? And when you look at the when you look at these bat when you look at this specific battle, the casualties weren't that big. They, no. you, you know, the Federals had about 300, 350. Yeah, and the Federals had about five hundred. Yep. And most of these were that part of that battle there. You know, with with Claiborne. Yep. Right. That's where most of it took place. You, when you look at what happened in Franklin, and we've always said all along in this podcast, Marie, how how avoidable Franklin could have and should have been. Yeah. This could have been a situation where the, the mistakes led to it. I just don't think you can pin this on. I just don't. I think there are too many variables into play with this. But I think, you know, if the, if the buck truly does stop here, yes, you've got to blame him. But I also think that I think there was so many communication errors and so many, so many issues. I think what Stephen D. Leeds did was absolutely unforgivable. I think that's the biggest oh, thing. Yeah. People want to blame he, Cheatham for this, really. Yeah. But I think, and I think Cheatham deserves. He's another piece of the blame pie you've yep, got to give. He is. I, I think. I think Stephen D. Lee, and again, you know, he does not have a fantastic success. He does not have a good record. I mean, have. Cheatham's got a good record though, but I think some of these guys when they get higher in command they just for some reason it's it's not for them they're better lower in command and i think that was the case for you know hood hood is good early on in the civil war i do think his injuries definitely plagued him later in the war um but as you said you know he's going into this his seemingly like he's in pretty good condition health-wise compared to what he was say at something like as a church but i think you have a situation where it's men that are not really suited for the positions they're in. Like Cheatham is no Hancock, put it to you that way, as as a court no, commander. No, no. In, in in this point too, you you got a very motivated army, but also in the back of your mind, it's it's Atlanta's fallen. Sherman's yeah. doing his thing. You've also got Grant doing his thing in the east at Overland at this point. The election of 64 is pretty much fait accompli. You wonder how much gas is left in the tank at this point. Yeah. Um 
But I think, you know, I think it, if you are going to blame Hood on this, it's having those three inexperienced guys that he doesn't really sit on. But again, he's new to position too. So it's really tough to say. But yeah. one of those enduring mysteries is why they didn't hear Schofield's army go by, it, whether it be acoustic shadow, whether it be complete and utter exhaustion, or maybe, just maybe, it was a good move by Schofield, which no one ever talks yeah, about. Yeah, it could have been it could have been a brilliant move by Schofield. I think in some ways, maybe men like Cheatham and Claiborne might have been starting to give up. I Well, I don't, I shouldn't say Claiborne giving up, but maybe just like, why are we doing this sort of thing, like from Cheatham? I don't know if Claiborne would have quite been there at that point, given the speeches he made. But the other thing to remember about Spring Hill as well is that there were a lot of men that fought there that, you know, saw stuff that might have seen things go down that less than 24 hours later, they're dead. And we don't have their accounts of what happened at Spring Hill. And one of those is, is Patrick Claiborne. If we, if Patrick Claiborne had lived through Franklin and then Nashville, we would have had his account of Spring Hill. And maybe that would give us more answers as to what exactly happened. Um, you know, I was telling you before we recorded that, you know, in Simmons' biography, of Claiborne, he talks about Spring Hill. And the way Simmons discusses it, he discusses it from Claiborne's perspective. So in the sense that you like, it's clear Claiborne didn't really know what was going on. It's a really interesting perspective in a biography to read it that way. Um, but I think, you know, we are at a loss as to what exactly happened because so many men died at Franklin that could have given us more answers as to what happened at Spring Hill. But it is definitely one of the more controversial moments of the Civil War. And Hood would say of it, he said, thus the best move of my career as a soldier came to naught. Uh -huh. So even he thought his plan was quite good and sound, which it was. And I do agree with you. The blame should not fall to, like, completely on him. You've been, like, Cheatham and especially Stephen Dealey. And it's going to cost him six of his generals, too. Exactly. Yeah, because Hiram, Hiram Granberry, who is also fighting at Spring Hill, he will die the next day at Franklin. He's in, in the thick of it at Spring Hill as well. He's another one that we could have had another voice to, to figure out answers as well for what uh, happened. Otto Strahl, States Rights Gist, yep. and John John Adams, and obviously Claiborne and Gorbachev. But I mean, it's 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 a miscommunication that does cost lives. Now yep. you can you can make the case that maybe Hood's attack at Franklin was was a folly the next day. Mm -hmm. um, doubling down to Nashville was, but he, again, he was aggressive. He was he was invested at that point. But at the end of the day, that the campaign is going to completely fail, and it's just not going to work out too well for. Uh, for John Bell Hood and that army of Tennessee, which is going to kind of drift away at that point. Yeah. And there was one interesting story I wanted to talk about that happened on this campaign. Yes, it is to do with Pat Claiborne, but it had happened on around November 22nd or 23rd. And they were staying at Hamilton Place, which was Lucius Polk's plantation, which Claiborne and Lucius Polk were quite good friends. But Claiborne remarked that it was quite beautiful and peaceful there. And he saw a small chapel and he said to his staff, he remarked, it is almost worth dying to rest in so sweet a spot. There you and, go. and he's saying that, you know, about just, just a week before he, he dies. You know, so the last night on earth, Patrick Claiborne is going to spend in a field yep. not far from the Columbia Turnpike. And you know, that's how it's going to be for him. So, yeah. And all it's those men spend thing. the night. And, all, and, you know, you think about it, they're spending the night there and Schofield sneaks right by them. And who knows if it was a brilliant move on Schofield. Like, I mean, the Confederates wake up the next day and the road is littered with their stuff, right? Because they're dropping things left, right and center as they go along. Well, it's kind of like the road after you drive down your little car throwing your McDonald's cups off the window. Exactly. DQ, empty DQ. Tell me about it. Car full of them, but I, but I, but again, it's a it's it's a it's a it's a mysterious type of situation. Spring Hill is similar to Second Winchester heading into Gettysburg. It's mm -hmm. something that you have to, to to truly appreciate Franklin. You really have to be able to study Spring Hill and understand the intrigue and the mystery and the controversy of what the heck actually happened there. Yeah. But I think when you're looking at that blame pie we talked about, it's more than one piece. It's not. It's more than just than just Hood. Yeah. You got to you got to look at the people who who he entrusted. Now you can make the case that he maybe shouldn't have entrusted them, but at the end of the day, people in corps command should be able to report when an army is leaving and moving in towards you, right? Yeah. Um, you should be able to not have a, a, a corps commander who is going to give contradictory orders to division commanders, yeah. right? Well, that's why I keep going um, back to Hancock and saying like he he's relatively new to the position at the time that Gettysburg happens, right? But look at how, how good he is in that position mm -hmm. and for me to say that because i'm not a huge fan of hancock admittedly but you know i'm comparing him with cheatham who 
is unable to like he's not going back to hood to say hey this is what's happening he's doing the opposite to what hood wants whereas uh-huh. Meade and trust hancock to follow those orders that he's given him he does he does so i think spring hill's interesting i think we did we think we did it justice today mm-hmm. setting into setting up for the franklin the franklin battle so what is next so next we are going to be talking about knoxville a little about that and then Knoxville, Tennessee. Yep. Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, in Tennessee, huh? Yep. And then we are still going to be staying in Tennessee and we are going to be wrapping up our discussion of this campaign with the battle of Nashville. Um, the final battle of Nashville, obviously. Now at some point we are going to go back and look at some of the other battles in this campaign, the Franklin Nashville campaign, because they are quite interesting. Like you have Alatona, you have Versaca, you have Dalton and you have Decatur as well. Now they're relatively small battles, but they all factor into this whole franklin nashville campaign as well and i think they're important to discuss too but yes coming up we have knoxville and nashville get your nashville chicken ready mary was yep. staying in was staying in the volunteer yep. stage yep. Going sorry up eastern theater going... fans we're gonna stay in the western theater for a few more weeks maybe, maybe we'll hit tootsies on broadway while we're there maybe let's go, go watch some country western stuff we'll yep. see some music we'll see some stuff <laughs> speaking of tennessee mary the ugliest bloodletting of all is going to take place this Sunday with the Patriots for the Tennessee Titans. So it is. Go Pats. Tied it all together right there. Yep. We have Franklin 2.0 in Foxborough. Yep. All right. So off we go. So some good stuff coming. Our live is coming up this Saturday. By the time this drops, it'll be hopefully everyone will have had a good and productive Thanksgiving. Have a good yes. holiday. Us Americans here have Thanksgiving, Mary. Hey, we I are... still celebrate. I do celebrate. Uh, you celebrate everything. I do. Know? Beers in the morning. Beers in the morning, Mary. Yep. Every day. Exactly. But, uh, but we got good things to talk about. So everybody, thanks for listening again. Our as usual, our live. Also, by the time we drop this, our latest roundtable will be in the books. Yep. So that'll be a good thing. I'm sure that will go pretty well for everyone as well. Yep. Any final words from you, Fincheroo? Well, thanks for bringing it as you always do. You uh, rocked this episode, so thank you for ah, for right. everything, and thank you to all our listeners for all your support. Um, we definitely enjoyed our Facebook Live last Saturday. It was a lot of fun, a lot of great discussion, and I'm sure the one that happens at 10 o'clock today will be just as good. So One last yeah. final words for me, Mary. Yes, I do. Go blue. Yep. Beat Ohio. Go blue, exactly. But yes, we will be wearing our Michigan gear for sure. Because Absolutely. Beat Ohio. And anyway, so any other final words from you? That is it. That is it. Great job by you, as always. Off we go into the great blue yonder, and uh, away we go. So, everyone, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Thanks for all your support. We will talk to you on our live. And peace the hell out, Mary. See y'all later. Bye. Da, 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 da.